Uh, Ezra chapter 9, we're going to read the whole chapter, and I want to preface this just for a moment before we read it. This is a portion of scripture, and when we started Ezra, one of the things that we talked about was that Ezra does not end incredibly well. Rather, it ends rather difficultly, ends with some great difficulty, and is a hard book. And Ezra is one book with Ezra and Nehemiah in the Hebrew canon. So we're doing both. We're going to go straight from Ezra to Nehemiah. But this week and next week, we're looking at some a rather difficult passage um, where things kind of go south in the story. Uh, and it's, I told you before when we started that there's some great leadership stuff to learn in Ezra. There's some great, uh, there's some great organizational things to learn. There's some great principles of how to be godly in Ezra, but they're about to come up on something very hard. And the Bible, thankfully, is not a book that tells you everything is easy. It rather is a book that tells you that we have a great God who will walk with you even through the difficulties. So we're about to embark on a two-week study of difficulty. Just wanted to preface that before we read this so that you're not going, where is this going? Um, So let's read together Ezra chapter (coughs) 9. Let's go. After these things had been done, the officials approached me and said, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the land with their abominations from the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the land. And in this, in this faithlessness, the hand of the officials and the chief men has been foremost. As soon as I heard this, I tore my garments and my cloaks and I pulled my hair from my head and my beard and I sat appalled. Then all who trembled at the words of God of Israel because of the faithlessness of the returned exiles gathered around me while I sat appalled until evening sacrifice. And at the end, at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my fasting with my garments and my cloak and tore with my cloak torn and I fell upon my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord my God saying oh my God I am ashamed and blessed to lift my face to you my God for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens from the days of our fathers to this day We have been in great guilt, and our priests have been given into the hand of the kings of the land. To the sword, to captivity, to plundering, and to utter shame, as it is today. But now, for a brief moment, favor has been shown by the Lord our God to leave us a remnant and to give us a secure hold within His holy place that our God may brighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our slavery. For we are slaves. Yet our God has not forsaken us in our slavery, but has extended to us His steadfast love before the kings of Persia to grant some reviving, to set up the house of our God, to repair its ruins, and to give us some protection in Judea and Jerusalem. And now, O our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments, which you commanded by your servants, the prophets, saying, the land that you are entering to take possession of it is a land impure with the impurity of the peoples of the land, with their abominations that have filled it from the end to end. With uncleanness. Therefore, do not give your daughters to their sons, 
nor take their daughters for your sons, and never seek their peace or prosperity, that you may be strong and eat the good of the land and leave it for an inheritance to your children forever. And after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great guilt, seeing that you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserved and have given us such a remnant as this, shall we break your commandments again and intermarry with the people who practice these abominations? Would you not be angry with us until you consumed us so that we should be no remnant nor any to escape? O Lord, the God of Israel, you are just, for we are left as a remnant that has escaped as it is today. Behold, we are before you in our guilt. For none can stand before you because of this. And God add his blessing to the reading and the hearing of his word. So let's begin by establishing something here that we should know just off the top of our heads being believers. The law does not save. The law does not save. The law doesn't save. It is not there to save. That is not the purpose of the law. The purpose of the law is explained to us in Galatians, where Paul says the purpose of the law is that it would act as a schoolmaster to show you your need for Christ. The law doesn't save. Rather, it points out where we are wrong. It points out how you are to live. And it also shows that when you don't live perfectly by the law, you've broken the whole thing. Jesus says when you break one part of the law, you've broken the whole thing. And that the law is not therefore bad, but the law is good. Paul explains the law is good. The problem is we break it. <clears throat> the law itself cannot bring salvation, though. All it does is show us where we are sinful. That's the purpose of the law. The law, it's not, there's no pretense here. It's not that God made the law and said this is the way by which you will be saved. No, in fact, he says at the end of giving the law to Moses, what does he say in Exodus 32? He stands on the, he's on the mountaintop. Moses is coming down with the law. He share, he's going to share it with the people. And before Moses goes down the mountaintop, God says, for six days you will work and strive to be holy. And for six days you will labor and toil. And on the seventh day you will rest and you will remember that I am the Lord who makes you holy. That it is I who make you holy. Not the law, not your obedience to it. Not your goodness, not your works, not your deeds, but the Lord who makes us holy. It is the Lord who does it. It is God who does it, which is beautiful. And I just want to make sure that we understand as we go before this chapter of Ezra and the next chapter of Ezra, and we see them in this massive mess that they've created by their own hands, that we understand that their righteousness is not due to their works. Their righteousness is due because God gives it to them. Through faith and trust in Jesus Christ is the only way to be made righteous. That's the only way to be made righteous. And if you insist on living by the law, you will die by the law. You will not find life in the law, but only in Christ Jesus. So before we went anywhere, I want to make sure that, that was fresh on our brains as we read this, as we study this together. So, this passage is divided into three portions. Uh, or actually, here's the setting of what's going on. Ezra has been there for a few months. We saw it at the beginning after these things had been done. So this is after they've come back. Ezra has been teaching probably, most scholars think, five, five months to a year at this point. He's been teaching and preaching the law. They've had their worship services restored. They've been doing daily sacrifices in their temple. The temple is being rebuilt. It's being restored. And they are all working together. And everything seems to be going well. Everything seems to be going well. The temple worship is restored. The law is being taught. And Ezra, for all practical purposes, is doing his job well. He's teaching the Bible. And we know he's doing his job well because the leaders and officials are going to come to him and they're going to quote the law to him. They're going to quote the law to him, which means that he's been doing a good job teaching the law because they know it. 
So, here we come to this passage, and we've got to divide it into three portions for us. Ezra is made aware in verses 1 through 5 of what's going on. He's made aware of the trouble. <clears throat> the officials come to him, and he's made aware. Second, Ezra gives a response in verses 6 through 9. A response, note, not to man, but to God. He speaks to God, and he, he goes to God to intercede on behalf of the people. This is an important Old Testament picture. Remember when we were studying the book of Esther, Ezra? I'm sorry. Studying the book of Ezra, we got to about chapter 4, 5, 6, and 7. We started to understand that Ezra is a type for Christ. So sins of the people come before Ezra, and he intercedes on behalf of the people. He goes before God. And then, in verse, in, in the third part, in verses 10 through 15, they cry out. The people of God cry out, led by Ezra, cry out to God. Now, as we go here, let's look at verses uh, 1 through 5. So in verses 1 through 5, it says, After these things had been done, the officials approached me, that's Ezra, and said, to, said The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with their abominations, from the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the, Amorite, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons, so that their holy race is mixed itself with the peoples of the land. And in this faithlessness... The hand of the officials and the chief men have been foremost. So the officials come to, Ab come to Ezra and they tell him, this is bad. Look at what's happened, Ezra. We've come to the land. We've been here for five months. We've been talking. We've, you've been teaching us the law five months to a year, somewhere in there. And you've been teaching us the law. And Ezra, we've heard you. We've heard the law. And there's this law that says we're not supposed to intermix. And they list off all the ites. Right? Now, here's why you know that they're getting that from the law. Those ites don't exist in Ezra's time period. Some of those ites are not in the land, but they are mentioned specifically in Deuteronomy. So you know that the officials are coming to Ezra going, you've been teaching us the law and we saw this verse. We've seen this verse repeated because it is repeated over and over and over. Do not intermarry with the ites. The John Elkins shortened version. This is, this is what's going on. And they've got conviction over the people. And their response is because some of the people in the land or the, the people of Israel have synchronized worship. Note right there, it includes the abominations, right? It's not just that they've intermarried. Like, that's not the only issue. But that intermarriage is an interweaving of religious faith. They are synchronizing their worship. They're giving into syncretistic worship, saying, I'll do a little bit of what my, my new wife has said to do and worship her household gods and her idols. And, and I'll also worship Yahweh. So I'll do both. I'll kind of straddle the fence. And the Lord is very clear in the Old Testament and in the law, that you are not to do that. You are not to do that. So it includes intermarriage, but it also includes a watering down of their faith. Now, this is a very difficult situation because I just I, I want you to get this. Like this is not an easy thing. This is not an easy thing. If I were a synagogue rabbi at this time, living outside of Jerusalem, and I had somebody in my congregation who seemed to love Yahweh. Seemed to love Yahweh, but his wife didn't come with him to church or synagogue. And he's got five, five kids. Like, let's just make it up. He's got five kids. They come with him occasionally. His wife doesn't come. He's kind of torn. He loves this woman. Like, they grew up in the same area. It's been 70, so, 70 or so years that they've been in the land. Like, they've been back for a while. And he grew up here. And he he's young. He got married to a woman because he loved her. 
he wasn't really devout at first, but he started coming to synagogue after he had kids because that's when people go to church when problems start showing up at home. And he comes, and he comes to me, and he goes, my wife doesn't believe. What, what do you do? You look at the guy and you go, I'm sorry. That's really hard. Do you look at him and go, you need to divorce your wife and abandon your kids? No. You No. You, I mean, everything in me goes, don't do that. You try to teach them best they can to live in that situation. And you hope that the wife believes and the kids believe. But this is hard. I want you to understand this is hard. This isn't an easy thing. This isn't. There's no cut and dry here when you have a man and a woman who get married and they, maybe they don't have kids, but they get married, they love each other and they seem fine at first and then, you know, a year in, the guy loses it and changes to be somebody totally different and you're going, I performed the marriage. They were in my church. They were in my, you know, in this case, they were in my synagogue and and I perform like, what do I do? Like, I walk with the two, right? I don't, you don't, you look at the wife and go, you need to leave him. He doesn't believe. No, no, it's hard. It's a hard situation. This is not an easy situation. And why is it hard? So let's, let's look at intermarriage in the Bible. Um, why not intermarry with another faith? And we're going to read some, we're just going to look at some scriptures and kind of see four in particular, and we're going to see what God says about this. So, first, they will lead to idolatry. In Exodus 34, verses 11 through 16, it says this, Observe what I command you this day. Behold, I will drive out before you the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. All the ones listed there. I'll drive out before you them. Take care. <laughs> at least you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go. <laughs> at, least, at least it becomes a snare in your midst. You shall tear down their altars and break their pillars and cut down their ashram. Note, their, that worship that the world does, that the, that the Canaanites were doing, God says, end that worship. End that worship. This is not about the person, but about the religion and the worship and the faith practice that is a false one. Tear those things down. And he says, for you shall worship no other gods, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Least you, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and when they whore after their gods and sacrifice to their gods, and you are invited, you eat of his sacrifice. So the idea here is that you are to tear down their altars, tear down their worship, and not participate in any of their worship. And if you get married to a person who's involved in that worship, guess what's going to happen? You're going to get involved in that worship. The next we see, and you take of their daughters for your sons, and your daughters whore after their gods, and make your sons do the same after their gods, whore after their gods. So, here in Exodus 34, we see that you don't marry another faith because inevitably you're going to be drawn into that faith at some level and and your children are and your kids are. Then why not intermarry? It'll turn your children away. This is the next one here in Deuteronomy 7.3. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. And the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you, and he would destroy you quickly. So here he says, don't intermarry, because your sons and your daughters are going to turn away from the Lord, and the Lord will destroy the people. You, plural, all of you, he will destroy the people in anger. Next, we see, why not intermarry? Well, you won't have victory. In Joshua, it says, for you turn back and cling to the remnant of these nations remaining among you and make marriages with them, 
so that you associate with them and they with you, know for certain that the Lord will no longer drive out these nations before you, but <coughs> but they shall be a snare and a trap to you, a whip to your side and a thorn to your eyes until you perish from off this good ground that the Lord your God has given you. Joshua 23, 12-13. You will not have victory in life if you intermarry with other faiths. You won't have victory. And then finally, the fourth reason here, the hearts will be turned away from the Lord. You shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall you, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their God. And Solomon clung to these in love, these commands in love. First Kings 11 through 11.2. So we see that your heart will be torn away from following the Lord if you intermarry with other faiths. So, intermarriage results in these things. This is a, another pastor wrote these things out. I thought it was great. wanted to share it. Intermarriage results in this. A truth that is too distant. A grace that is too ordinary. A judgment that is too benign. And a gospel that is too easy. And a Christ that is too common. This is what intermarriage with the world looks like. When we synchronize our faith, when we water down our faith, when we say personally, I'm allowed to give in to these certain areas where the world worships, um, this is what happens. Christianity becomes weak and our faith becomes weak. Bonhoeffer would call this cheap grace. Uh, in his book, Cost of Discipleship, he spends a whole two chapters talking about what cheap grace is. If you've never read it, I'd highly recommend it. Cheap grace is this too distant a truth that's too far away a grace that's too ordinary a judgment that's too benign and not at all worrisome to us not at all concerning to us a gospel that is too easy and requires nothing of changed life or anything to prove it and a Christ that is too common and treated with no reverence and no honor and no respect this is what intermarriage with the world does. This is what synchronizing faith does. And I want to be clear, it's synchronizing faith that's what's going on. It's not simply marrying somebody who's come from a different cultural background. That's not what this is. This is synchronizing faith. This is marrying marriage to another faith. Your faith marrying another faith and thereby... Watering down the truth. But it's hard. So the officials came to Ezra and they talked, they responded to the word of God. The officials responded to the word of God there. And we know, again, we know that they did that because they're quoting it to him. They're quoting passages of scripture to this man. And then second, the officials notice that everyone is guilty. I want you to just take note of what they say here. They've taken their, look at verse 2, they've taken some of their fathers, some of their daughters to be wives to themselves and for their sons so that the holy race is mixed, has mixed with the peoples of the land and the, this faithfulness, faithlessness and in this faithlessness, the hand of the officials and the chief men has been foremost. So when they first come with it, they go, the Levites and the priests and everyone have done this. And then at the end of it, they go, we did it. We did it. So the positive here. These men have been confronted with the word of God through Ezra's teaching. They heard the word of God. It landed on their heart and they said, things have to change. And they came to Ezra and they did not say, look at these wicked people. What they said was, hey, I married a Canaanite. And I've been going to worship at their church and mine. I married a Jebusite. And we have household gods that we make sacrifices to. Ezra, we are afraid. Because he, they read Deuteronomy 7. 
They read that passage and said, I will destroy you if you do this. That the people will be destroyed. They read that passage and they are afraid. They are trembling. Rightly so. They're trembling. And they come before Ezra and they go, Ezra, what do we do? We've been here for 70 years now. We've been here a long time. And our kids are are intermingled. I love my daughter-in-law. I love my son-in-law. What do I do? This is a difficult place to be. Faithlessness here of the people has come full circle. So, remember, faithlessness and disobedience are bedfellows. If you're faithless, you're probably going to be disobedient. And if you're disobedient, you're definitely acting out some form of faithlessness. A lack of faith. You're acting out a lack of faith at some level. Disobedience and faithlessness do not require each other to exist. But they often do exist together. They are bedfellows. They, they go together. When you, are, when you lack faith in Christ, you lack trust in Him, frequently disobedience will follow. And when you are disobedient, it is often because you did not trust Jesus well enough. Or you did not have trust in Jesus over a circumstance. No, no more perfect illustration of this is found than in Jacob's life. When he lacks faith and he disobeys, and he constantly does it. I don't know if you've ever read Jacob's story, Genesis 24 all the way through 34. You can read that story and you can see he lacks faith at times to trust in the Lord. And he tries to do things with his own hands and ends up being disobedient in some way, shape, or form. Often living up to the name that he was given at birth, which is Liar. That's his name. How would you like that? Just a side note. How would you like to be named Liar? What's your name? Liar. What? Uh, really? So that's, he's called Supplanter. That's his name. And so he, he goes uh, and, and sins openly against God, often because he lacks trust. Often because he lacks trust. And yet, one of the beautiful things we can see is the same thing we see here, that God is gracious and good and kind. Faith that does not have works is dead, James would tell us. James 2, 26. Faith that does not have works is dead. So, what happens here? Ezra responds to the officials. First, he's overwhelmed and silent. He sits for a long time, and he does so until it is time to give sacrifice. Look at this in verse 3. As soon as I heard this, I tore my garments and my cloak, and pulled my hair from my head and my beard, and I sat appalled. Then all who trembled at the words of God of Israel, because of the faithlessness of the returned exiles, gathered around me while I sat appalled until evening sacrifice. And at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my fasting with my garments and my cloak torn, and I fell upon my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord my God, saying... So, we'll look at verse 6 in a minute. But the... He sits in silence for a long time. He sits appalled. The word appalled means shocked to empty silence. It means desolate is what that word means. And when he says, I was appalled, it means like, I didn't know what to do. I, just, I was just broken. Have you ever been there? I mean, most of us have. At some point in your life, you were appalled at something. Appalled to the point of being broken. And, and, and this kind of appalled is not like I'm upset that somebody else did something. This is an appalled like, how can this be? This is the same, this word conveys the same thing of when somebody sees God for the first time and falls on the ground. Just no response. Just, I fell to the ground as a dead man. That's the same concept here. He he doesn't know. He tore, he tears hair out of his face. He rips his coat He tears his clothes and he sits and he does nothing. This is a man who is overwhelmed by what he has just heard. And he sits until evening sacrifice. He is shocked to empty silence. He is overwhelmed in silence. So profound is his silence that the people gather around him. Look at verse 4. Then all who trembled at the words of God of Israel because of their faithlessness 
and returned exiles gathered around me. So he is so, his demonstration of his appalled nature is so powerful that people start to come and gather around him and just sit with him. And just sit with him. Same thing is described in Job when Job first in chapter 2 when he loses everything and his friends come and sit with him for seven days. Same phrase, same idea. They sit with him for seven days in utter silence while he's just quiet. That's the only thing, his, if you're ever going to read Job, by the way, that's the only thing his friends ever do well. Sit with him for seven days in silence. They sit with him. And in Ezekiel, the same thing is described, the same word is used to describe surrendered worship, that he was appalled before the Lord. He surrenders all of his worship before the Lord. This is shocked silence. And let's, be, let's just take a leadership lesson here. Sometimes your shocked silence can convey a great deal more than words. As a leader, sometimes shocked silence and responding to the Lord in an appropriate manner without saying a lot can do a great deal more than your words ever could. So, Ezra sits in silence until evening sacrifice. Evening sacrifice is commanded in numbers to happen at twilight. So imagine the so I imagine at some point early in the day, Ezra is getting his scrolls ready, ready to teach. Can you imagine he's he's excited, he's got his scrolls ready, he's ready to teach, he's he's lining out things on the on the table, getting ready, he's sat down, he's he's done his daily devotional, he's he's ready to be Pastor Ezra. He's excited about it. Things are going well. Temple's growing, people are coming, there's even some foreigners coming. How great is that? Even some foreigners. He doesn't realize their intermarriage and all that. He's not necessarily aware of that. The officials come. Hey, Ezra, you taught us Deuteronomy chapter 7 last week. You've taught it to us before. You've been going through the law. Listen, we got a problem. The first one comes in. I'm married to a Canaanite. And we have household gods. And Ezra, here's what I've done. I've taken those gods and I've put them in the closet. My wife still worships them. My kids, I don't know what to do. Like, do we go back and forth? What do we? How do we do this? Next one comes in. Hey, Ezra, we got a problem. I'm the rabbi down the road at the synagogue meeting over in Bethlehem. I don't know somewhere. I'm I'm in the synagogue over there, and I've written here to tell you that 90% of my congregation is mixed. 90% of them. They're in my congregation. Next one comes in. Hey, Ezra, we were getting ready for a sacrifice, and one of the one of the officials had a question. And he walks in. Hey, yeah, so when do we get to add in Baal to, to the sacrifice? Like, when do we get to add in Baal? When do we get to add in the Rolling Stones to our worship set? When do when do we get to when do we get to add this practice over here that we do in this other religion to this? Like that's a good practice. It's good psychological evaluation. Like when do we get to add that psychological evaluation over here to our I think we should take all our leaders through this particular program that talks about self care and self love. You see what's happened? It's not hard to imagine this. And Ezra sits until evening, and the people begin to come. Now, there's that phrase in there, those who trembled before God came. This indicates that there are some who didn't. This, is, this indicates that there are some who didn't tremble before God, who weren't there. And they are standing on the outside going, we'll see how this plays out. We're going to see that in the next chapter a lot. So, here, Ezra prays this incredibly heartbreaking prayer to God. Oh my God, I'm ashamed and I blush to lift my, lift my face before you. I want to just take a couple moments to highlight some of the good things Ezra does. First, he owns corporate sin. Ezra didn't intermarry. Ezra's not guilty. Ezra didn't do this. Ezra is teaching the law... Ezra has been a righteous man. 
just like Daniel in Daniel chapter 9, Daniel didn't engage in the sins of the people. But what's he say? Oh, Lord, our sins are great before you. Ezra here takes ownership of corporate sins. Further, he owns the past. Look at verse 7. From the days of our fathers to this day, we have been guilty. We have been in great guilt. And for our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests, have been given into the hands of kings of the land to the sword, to captivity, to plundering, and to utter shame, as it is today. So Ezra recognizes that their captivity is not over. They're still captive. The temple has been restored. The walls, even, are starting to come up. They're starting to rebuild Jerusalem. They've been standing. They've got good standing. They are becoming their own nation again. And yet Ezra looks at this and goes, we're still in captivity. He owns the past. He owns the past and goes, we're still in the same condition we were before. He recognizes that their physical change has not changed. He owns those two things. He's ashamed, but then there's hope. There's hope. Verse 8, but now for a brief moment, the favor of God, favor has been shown by the Lord our God to leave us a remnant and to give us a secure hold within this holy place that our God may brighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our slavery, for we are slaves. Yet our God has not forsaken us in our slavery, but has extended to us his steadfast love before the kings of Persia to grant some reviving, to set up the house of God, to prepare its ru- to repair its ruins, and to give us protection in Judea and Jerusalem. So he owns his corporate sin. He owns the past. Ezra recognizes that they still require freedom from slavery, that they're still in captivity. He even calls them slaves. You saw that. But there's hope in his message. There's hope in his prayer. You see, his love for the law, Ezra's love for the law, is shown through this plea. His love for the law is shown that he recognizes that he's still slave. That he's still a man under the law. He recognizes that he needs true freedom and that the law will not give him true freedom, but he loves it. He loves the law, but all it does is show him he's still enslaved. He needs true freedom. He needs the prophet, priest, and king to come. I'm getting ahead of myself. He needs the prophet, priest, and king to come and bring salvation. Ezra could have done so many things here. He could have said, he could have made this about them, right? He could have made this a they problem. He could have looked at his officials and gone, well, that's the people. They need to, they need to repent. And he could have said, they, they need to do this. They need to do that. They need to do that. Instead, he says, me, I, we, we are in this together, which is a beautiful, just another beautiful uh, application for us. This is how the church should be. The church should be, if I see you having difficulties, hey, guess what? We're having difficulties. If I see you struggling in sin, guess who's going to get in it with you and help pull you out? We are going to do this together. We're going to fight sin together. We're going to war for holiness together. We're going to change the world together. It's not they. It's not you do this. I'm doing everything right. No, it's we If you're broken, I'm broken. And if I'm strong, you're strong. If you're strong, I'm strong. But when you're weak, we share that weakness. We bear each other up. We walk with one another. That's what the church is supposed to do. Ezra could have made this a they problem. He could have even gone further and made it an us versus them problem, which you see in other places in Scripture. People going, this is an us versus them. That that tribe versus us tribe. He could have made it an us versus them. What's your tribe nowadays? I got this team over here. We love to identify ourselves by tribes, don't we? We love to go, that's my camp over here. I 
fit in this camp until that camp starts to mess up. And then we're like, no, maybe not that one. This one over here. We like to pick camps. What Christ tells us to do is love the body of Christ. And that some of us are hands and some of us are noses and some of us are feet. Noses have to be wiped by the hand. The hand can't go anywhere without the feet. And noses also tell the hand and the feet when they smell bad. Right? This is, this is an awkward depiction that we are told in Scripture that that's who we are. So Ezra, one of the applications we can draw here is that this is, this is a me problem. That when you see somebody struggling with faith or with sin, this is a me problem. This is a we issue. This is not a them. This is not an us versus them. They're on your team. They're part of your body. But Ezra made it a me problem, which was great. And he's got hope within the text. He's a remnant that's been saved. God has granted them a little reviving for the time. And God has not forsaken them. I think those three things are things that we need to remember as the church of Jesus Christ when the world is falling down around us and everything seems to be crashing in. And even in the church, church believing church at large, universal, even within the church, it seems like everything is corrupt. Even in that moment, remember, God preserves his people. God grants reviving at times, even amidst the wicked people. And that God has not forsaken and will not leave. John 15, I will not leave you. I will not leave you as orphans, but I will send one who will walk with you. I will send you my spirit and he will make his dwelling within you. We have Christ working within us. And then we have the crying out there in verses 10 through 15, where he cries out to the Lord. Our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments, which you commanded by your servants, the prophets, saying the land that you are entering to take possession of it is the land impure with the impurity of the peoples of the land, with their abominations that have filled, filled it from end to end with their uncleanness. Therefore, do not give your daughters to their sons, neither take, your, take their daughters for your sons, and never seek their pl- peace or prosperity, that you may be strong and eat the good of the land and leave it for an inheritance to your children forever. And after all that, that has come upon us for our evil deeds, And for our great guilt, seeing that you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserve. I love that. He recognizes that the punishment he's receiving here, the exile, the losing of the land, the having to come back and all fight for everything, all that was not a sufficient punishment for their sin. I love that. He recognizes that. He recognizes he deserves death recognizes that the people who break the covenant with God deserve death, but they're given a light punishment. And then he says, you have given us a remnant such as this. Shall we break your commandments again and intermarry with the people who practice these abominations? Would you not be angry with us until you consumed us so that there should be no remnant nor any escape? O Lord, the God of Israel, You are just, for we are left a remnant that has escaped as it is today. Behold, we are before you in our guilt, for none can stand before you because of this. Ezra stands before God on behalf of the people and he intercedes. But I want you to note, he cannot save them. Ezra is a type for Jesus in that he stands before God and intercedes on behalf of the people. But he is not Jesus. He is not Jesus. Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus is the better Ezra. So he cries out. And there's three things to note about his crying out. One, this is an unsatisfying ending. This is an unsatisfying ending because there is not salvation here there's waiting there's Ezra going what are you going to do God 
And then silence. There's silence. And in order to find the answer to this, we have to jump back to Jeremiah and Isaiah and Zechariah. We have to remember that Zechariah, just 60 years prior, was prophesying in the same spot where Ezra is standing. And he was prophesying that there would be a king who would come and take on the sins of his people and that he would be a righteous king who would stand before God and make a way for his people and he would defeat sin and destroy sin altogether. We have to remember that in order for this to be satisfying. But Ezra is written so that you would not be satisfied but would seek the Lord Jesus Christ. That you would seek Him. Second, they cry out to God. And in their crying out, they show that they are completely and utterly dependent on the law. That's how they hear from God here. The law. And what do we know about the law? The law shows us our need for Jesus. And that's what Ezra is confronted with here. Their need for Jesus. So, I just want to remind you. Jesus is the better Ezra. Before we go anywhere else, we have to remember this. Jesus is the better Ezra. He came from heaven to earth. He's appointed by God. He is eternal. He is a better tent or temple in the book of Hebrews. And he is a better covenant. He is the better high priest. He is the better Ezra. Ezra stood before God, a man under the law. A man under the law. He loves the law. He loves it. He's got a zeal for it. He wants to do right and can't. And the people who are around him can't do right. And there's nothing they can do to get themselves out of this on their own. They are now trapped by their own sin. Because what's going to happen here? The people are intermarried. What's going to happen? There's going to be a bunch of abandonment of children and women. Because that's godly. That was sarcasm. Just in case you were like, that's God. No, that's not godly. Abandoning women and children is never godly. There's going to be a bunch of abandonment. Or, or there's going to be continued synchronism and this constant marriage strife. There's no good here. Apart from Jesus changing the soul of man, which Ezra cannot do. But Jesus can. Just to remind you. Whereas Ezra puts the law before the people and says we have to obey it, have some confidence. Jesus transforms our hearts by writing the law on it. This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Jeremiah 31, 33. It's quoted in Hebrews 9, 2. So we see this idea that Jesus changes our hearts from the inside, giving us a new nature, making us new. He writes the law on our hearts further. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, on tablets of, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. 2 Corinthians 3, verse 3. Your heart is written on by God to change. Next. We see in Ezekiel eleven nineteen, and I will give them one heart, and I will give them a new spirit, and I will put that spirit within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. Jesus changes your heart. You can't do good on your own, but Jesus changes your heart to make you righteous, writing on your heart a change. You strive so hard to be good, but he writes on your heart a change. Further, Ezekiel 36, 26, one of my favorite passages in the whole Bible. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a new heart. Note the emphasis, new heart. Next, he dwells in us and walks in us. Where Ezra put the law before the people, Jesus changes our heart and puts the law within us, making us people who are of grace, people who are under grace and not under the law, but the law lives in us because of the law of love and the spirit of life is is in us. Second, Jesus doesn't just do that and walk away, but he dwells within us and walks with us. John chapter 1 verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. Glories of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you in John 14 
18. And then in 1 Corinthians 3.16, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells within you? You have Jesus indwelling your soul. You are free in Christ Jesus. Ezra stood before the law, a man under the law, unable to save the people. Jesus changes the hearts of the people so that whatever circumstance they find themselves in, because of sin. Whatever difficulty they find themselves in because of past, present, or even future decisions that they're going to make. Whatever difficulty. He changes their heart, makes them righteous, that they could live right before the Lord. He writes the law in our hearts. He dwells within us and walks with us. Jesus is the better Ezra. That final stanza there is unsatisfying. And their answer next week is going to be unsatisfying. It's going to be an unsatisfying answer. Because a man who lives under the law, by the law, is going to die by the law. And there's not life in that. But what we have here for us is life eternal. Because Ezra, remember, is setting the stage for the greater high priest to come. That's his whole point. The whole purpose of Ezra and Nehemiah is that Israel needs a prophet, priest, and king to come live in their midst, purify their hearts, and save them. Likewise, we do too. And how beautiful it is that we've met him, and we know it, and that we can live in righteousness because we are no longer under the law, but under grace. He has rescued us from it. We no longer are slave to that law. We are now free from it. And because we are free from it, we can live up to it in Christ Jesus. We can work in Christ and he can delight in our work. Oh, that we would be a people that he delights in.